independent audit committee was a state office receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to call the August 17th meeting of the Independent Audit Committee to order. Uh, Amy, would you be kind enough to take the roll? Zach Blumenthal? Here. Here. Leslie Mitchell? Here. Brian? Here. Uh, next item, approval of July 20th meeting minutes. I move approval. Second. Thank you. Any amendments to the meeting minutes? Uh, all in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? All right. Follow up on the Pena Boulevard improvement construction contract audit. Uh, Dawn, if you would like to introduce your team and then Phil, I'll ask you to introduce yourself and the people from the airport that are here. All right. Thank you, Auditor O'Brien. Uh, good morning, audit committee members and, and our guests. My name is Dawn Wiseman. I was the audit manager over the engagement. Uh, Sonia Montano was the senior manager. She can't be with us today. So I will hand it on over to Carl and he'll introduce his team. Thanks, Don. Uh, my name is Carl Halverson. I was the audit manager on this engagement. Uh, we had June Samadhi here to my right, uh, left. Sorry about that. Um, and she was the lead on this engagement. And we also had Shannon Scheich. Uh, she was the senior on this engagement. Thanks. Bill? Yes, um, good morning and uh, happy to be here. I'm Phil Washington, the CEO of Denver International Airport. Uh, we have Jim Starling, uh, who is the Chief Development and we have Barrett Orwin, Director of Program Management. Welcome. Um, Started. And just before we get started, I'd like to thank the Denver Airport team for all of their um, cooperation during this time. Uh, they were great at answering our questions and getting documents to us. Thanks. I'll hand it over to Shannon. Thanks, Carl. Before I begin the background, I'd like to note that as of July 31st, 2023, the department formerly known as Airport Infrastructure Management Development is now Design, Engineering, and Construction. For the purpose of the report and presentation, we will still refer to them as airport infrastructure management. Denver International Airport is the third busiest airport in the United States and is one of the top 10 busiest airports in the world. To reach the airport's terminal by car, travelers must use Pena Boulevard, which is a 12 mile access road connecting the airport to major Denver highways, including I-70 and E-470. In 2020, the airport recognized that Pena Boulevard had reached its life expectancy and needed a major upgrade to keep pace with the airport's growth. The airport developed a 10-year improvement plan to expand and enhance the existing roadway. Seen here in figure one of the original report, the improvement plan is divided into four project phases. Phase one spans Jackson Gap Street to the main terminal. Phase two spans I-70 to 64th Avenue. Phase three spans E-470 to Jackson Gap Street, and phase four spans 64th Avenue to E-470. Our audit focused on the airport's oversight of the phase one contract. 
In March 2019, the airport awarded the phase one contract to interstate highway construction through a two-step request for proposal and request for qualification process based on best value in terms of cost and innovation to design and build the phase one project. The original project cost was almost $94 million and was scheduled to be completed by May 30th, 2022. In June 2020, the airport reduced the original scope of work due to the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Figure two of the original report seen here shows the difference in the project before and after the change in scope. Two major changes to the scope included eliminating the work along the outbound portions of Pena Boulevard and electing not to remove and relocate the ground transportation lot. The change in scope lowered the total project costs from around $94 million to about $35 million, which represents a 62% reduction. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division is responsible for overseeing all construction projects at the airport, including the Pena Boulevard Improvements Project. As of June 2021, the division was overseeing 37 active construction projects, which totaled $2.4 billion. In addition to their own staff, the division hires outside consultants to assist in performing day-to-day -day oversight activities. On the phase one contract, the division hired Atkins to help oversee the design and construction of the project. Atkins and division staff work together as a project management team. The objective of our original audit was to evaluate whether the Airport Infrastructure Management Division provided adequate oversight of phase one of the Pena Boulevard Improvements construction contract to ensure the city received the work it paid for. The audit examined the airport's oversight of phase one of the Pena Boulevard Improvements construction contract. Our work included reviewing the invoice and payments process, the contract change process, and evaluating compliance with subcontractor requirements. We reviewed documentation used to support the airport's oversight spanning August 1st, 2019 through December 31st, 2021. In our original audit report issued in May, 2022, we had one overall finding, which was that Denver International Airport needed better oversight of the Pena Boulevard Improvements Construction Project to ensure the best value for the city. We proposed 13 recommendations in May 2022. Of those, the airport fully implemented eight and partially implemented two, but one was not implemented. The airport disagreed with two recommendations in the original audit report. Before we present the recommendations, I'd like to pause for questions and comments from the committee or airport representatives. Comments at this point? No, not from us. Continue. We had one finding in the original audit report, which was that Denver International Airport needs better oversight of the Pena Boulevard Improvements Construction Project to ensure the best value for the city. Out of the 13 recommendations provided during the original audit, eight were fully implemented. I will read the first three recommendations before pausing for questions and comments. Beginning on page one of the follow-up report, Recommendation 1.1 to establish monetary penalties for late submissions was fully implemented. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division established a formal monetary penalty mechanism for contractors that failed to meet required submission deadlines. The mechanism requires a contractor's performance to be measured against performance matrix when the contractor submits an invoice and request for payment. 
Continuing on page one of the follow-up report, recommendation 1.4 to design a workflow to track non-compliant work was also fully implemented. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division designed and implemented a workflow and unifier to submit and review non-conforming work reports for contractors who fail to complete work in compliance with contract requirements. On page two of the follow-up report, recommendation 1.6 to develop policies and procedures for cost estimate services was also fully implemented. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division developed and implemented new policies and procedures to ensure estimates are reasonable and not to exceed amounts are supported by documentation. All projects are required to use the standard defined in the policy when assessing whether an estimate is required for project changes. As discussed on page one of the follow-up report, by establishing monetary penalties for late submissions helps ensure timelier submission and review of invoices which reduces the risk of potential overpayment for work not completed. Continuing on page one of the follow-up report, by documenting procedures for tracking non-compliant work and cost estimates allows for better monitoring and analysis of contract compliance and cost estimates to prevent overpayment for work. Before we continue with the rest of the fully implemented recommendations, I would like to now open the floor for any questions and comments from the agency and audit committee members. Questions from the committee? Uh, not from our side, I'm sorry. Okay. We'll continue then. On page three of the follow-up report, recommendation 1.8 to update policies and procedures for invoice review was fully implemented. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division has updated its invoicing process and corresponding policies and procedures to ensure invoices follow a standardized review process and are complete and accurate prior to approval. The division has also conducted training on new invoicing procedures with appropriate staff. On page four of the follow-up report, recommendation 1.9 to develop a process to monitor subcontractor selection was also fully implemented. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division developed and implemented a form to ensure compliance with design-build contracts with the city's general contract condition requirements. The form is used to document the written acceptance of all subcontractors used on a project and the contractor's certification of <coughs> subcontractor qualifications. As discussed on pages three and four of the report, by documenting procedures for invoice review ensures invoices are accurate with steps to verify contract budget and change orders. In addition, by monitoring subcontractor selection through written acceptance of subcontractors used on the project, including their qualifications, ensures better compliance with the city's general contract condition requirements. Before we continue to the last few fully implemented recommendations, I would now like to open the floor for any questions and comments from the agency and audit committee members. Questions from the committee, comments from the airport? No? Nope. Right. Like fully implemented recommendations? <laughs> <laughs> Don't like to talk about them. <laughs> On page five of the follow-up report, recommendation 1.11 to conduct training was fully implemented. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division developed a PowerPoint presentation and conducted training to communicate updates made to applicable subcontractor payment requirement processes. On page six of the follow-up report, recommendation 1.12 to evaluate the need for waivers was also fully implemented. 
the Airport Infrastructure Management Division waived the requirement that subcontractors and suppliers must submit partial claim releases to receive payment. This waiver applies to all projects subject to the general contract conditions. And finally, on page six of the follow-up report, recommendation 1.13 to develop and implement a delivery method selection process was also fully implemented. The Airport Infrastructure Management Division developed and implemented a procedure guide for how to document the decision-making process for selecting a project's delivery method. As discussed on page five of the report, by conducting a formal training on subcontractor payment requirements and including it as part of the onboarding process, ensures project management and contractors comply with all subcontractor payment requirements, which reduces the risk for inaccurate or incomplete payment information being submitted. On page six of the follow-up report, by waiving the requirement to submit a partial claims release allows the airport to align its process with its partnering agency, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. The original process did not pose any legal liability to the city, but rather it was used as an administrative process to provide assurance that contractors pay their subcontractors. And finally, continuing on page six of the report, by developing a step-by-step risk-based approach to selecting project delivery methods, it reduces the risk that the city selects an inappropriate method that could lead to increased project costs and delays. I would now like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the agency and audit committee members. Any questions, any come from us? No, sir. All right, I'll now hand it over to Carl to continue with our partially implemented recommendations. Thanks, June. As we've discussed, eight of the 13 recommendations were fully implemented. I'll now present the other five recommendations, which includes recommendations we determined were partially or not implemented, and we'll also cover the recommendations the airport disagreed with. Starting on page seven of the report, we determined the airport only partially implemented two recommendations, 1.3 and 1.10. Partial implementation means we found that the airport has taken some action to implement the re recommendation, but may fall short in some aspects. This leaves risk on the table. In the original audit, recommendation 1.3 was made because we found the airport's policies and procedures lacked formalized deadlines that occur during its process to review and finalize change requests. Extended review times could impact how quickly a contractor gets paid, which might in turn also impact payments to subcontractors. Drawn out review times could also potentially delay a project schedule. We determined this recommendation was partially implemented because we found the airport did update its policies and procedures, but the updates did not specifically establish review times and deadlines for change orders. This could have an impact on a project schedule and any work completed by a contractor before changes are finalized may not end up in the final amended contract. We also found that recommendation 1.10 was only partially implemented. During the original audit, we found that the airport was not ensuring all subcontractor payments were recorded. We recommended the airport should develop and implement procedures to ensure subcontractor payment information is recorded timely. We also recommended the policy include steps to coordinate with the Division of Small Business Opportunity to ensure that information needed to monitor compliance with requirements is included on each payment application. 
we found the airport did update its policies and procedures to ensure subcontractor payments are recorded. However, the documents we reviewed did not include a process to coordinate with the Division of Small Business Opportunity. Accordingly, project management and contractors may not comply with subcontractor payment requirements and the city not, may not be receiving the information it needs to monitor compliance with participation goals for women and minority owned businesses. I'll now pause here for any questions and comments from the agency and audit committee members. Thanks. Any further questions? Or? Uh, not so much a question. We, we obviously agree with the uh, recommendations. Um, uh, the coordination with DISBO, uh, we feel uh, is, has been happening, but uh, was not documented uh, appropriately. So I'd like Brandon Ganey to talk a little bit about both those recommendations and kind of where we are with both of those. Sure thing. Thank you, Phil. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. So on recommendation 1.3, <clears throat> the partially implemented portion, which had to do with the policies and procedures uh, specifically related to the change orders. Um, we did actually implement and revise our contract specification, spec number 12600, and this is titled Contract Modification Procedures. We did modify the language to address this specific finding, but to your point, I think there is some semantics that we need to go back and include on that. Um, so what we did was referenced our general contract conditions, which oversees contract changes, which is Title 11 in our yellow book, um, general conditions. We did add, um, I'll call it um, 3.02, which is timeline. And we added there that the deadline specified in Title 11 <clears throat> should be applied to the initial submission package for a change. Any request for revision, including negotiations, will be subject to the following deadlines. And this is where we tried to address that, but I think we need to just add a few semantics and we can coordinate with that in terms of language. But we said, if a contractor is asked to revise a final proposal, the revision will be completed and submitted through the designated system within seven calendar days. And then uh, number two of that was DIN will have 14 calendar days to review any revised proposal and provide a recommendation back to the contractor. This includes any reviews of the proposal on behalf of DIN including third parties, subject matter experts, and project manager reviews. And so I think the piece that we're missing there per the uh, follow-up recommendation is specifically calling out the change order piece. We, um, I shouldn't say assumed because that's not a good thing to do, but we um, thought that it was implied that those proposals, when we receive those, those are part of the change orders and the change management. But I think we should go back together and just make sure our language is clear and clean um, for that recommendation. So, Jim, any, or Barrett? <laughs> no, I think that covered it. Okay, all right. Thank you, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah, so the next one um, had to do with recommenda recommendation 1.10, and that's develop procedures for subcontractor payments. And the piece that was um, missing in terms of uh, the partial implementation there was our coordination with DISBO. And uh, as Phil mentioned, uh, we do coordinate very closely with DISPO throughout the process, but there are probably an there is an opportunity to do precisely what is recommended in this audit, which is 
as the contract is executed, have a touch point with DISBO to make sure that the prime, our project management team, and DISBO understand all subcontractor payment compliance um, entities. And so we have reached out since we've received this follow-up report to the director of uh, DISBO, and we're trying to work on a partnership that works for both parties in terms of how that looks. We want to make sure that it works for them, it works for DEN, and it also meets the needs and the recommendations of the audit finding. And for our, <clears throat> excuse me, viewing public, DISBO is the Division oh. of Small Business Opportunity. Right? <laughs> We've got a lot of acronyms. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We have even more. But. <laughs> Sorry about that, yes. Hey, Carl. Thank you. Um, next, we'll review the recommendations that were not implemented and those that were disagreed with. The airport agreed to recommendation 1.2, uh, but we determined that they did not implement this recommendation. The results of our review can be found on page nine of the report. In the original audit, we found the airport's practice to review the draft invoices did not match the review timeframe stated in its policies and procedures. Uh, specifically, the airport's procedures specified that the review time should be three days, but the project staff, um, they said that the three days was not enough time. Um, so the guidance also specified that staff should update the procedures as new information becomes available. And during the time of our audit, management had not updated the procedures to extend the review time period. We were told that airport staff could utilize lessons learned meetings to formally review project management plans and discuss changes and updates to the procedures. So we included this aspect in our recommendation. Um, during the follow-up, review of documentation the airport provided did not show that this process had been incorporated into its lessons learned meetings. Um, and so by not following its internal process to update its procedures to reflect changes as new information becomes available, the risk still remains that policy will not reflect actual practices used in, during the project. Um, so I'll pause here for any questions and comments before we move on to the disagrees. Comments, Phil? Um, I will turn it straight over to Brandon. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, we, we still plan on implementing this, um, but we just uh, missed the deadline, if you will. So I'm going to ask Brandon to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So thank you, Phil. Um, on this particular recommendation, we do have, as mentioned in the report, um, a lessons learned kind of process as we go through our projects. And in this particular piece, what we will do to further implement this or to implement it is we found the missing piece was in the lessons learned document, we don't necessarily call out almost like a criteria or um, I'll call it a milestone for reviewing that project management plan. We have a lessons learned document. We thought that that would help us review those items, but we were are missing that particular criteria such that as we move through a lessons learned um, process or meeting, we don't necessarily focus on that piece that was in here, which was, are we following the project management plan that we initiated when we started the project? If not, what are we doing? Do we need to update that piece? So our, our implementation will be, and we actually have a dashboard, um, we'll have a criteria that each project manager and project management team will 
fill out, you know, such that it'll say project management plan. Is there anything to update? If not, you know, no, we're following the plan. If so, where did we differentiate from the original PMP, project management plan? <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, we would make those updates there. So uh, we think that that is, I don't want to say an easy thing, but it is relatively um, a quick add to our overall template such that when we move through the lessons learned plans and process, we can stop and ask that question. So we're on our way to implementation. Yes, okay. yes, auditor, we are. Uh, finally, I'll present the two recommendations the airport disagreed with. You can find these recommendations in the uh, follow-up audit report starting on page 10. For recommendation 1.5, um, we recommended that the airport design and implement a workflow in one of its systems called Unifier, dedicated to tracking contract approvals, um, contract change approvals, sorry, that affect a project's contingency fund. The airport's response to this recommendation indicated that contract change approvals were tracked outside of Unifier as an interim solution because the functionality was not available um, when the project was initially set up. So risks remain as the airport cannot use Unifier to ensure that the amounts paid from the contingency fund are complete and accurate. Um, this could lead to potential cost overruns if incorrect adjustments are approved and exceed a project's budget. For recommendation 1.7, um, this one was also disagreed with. However, in the airport's response, um, management stated that they published a contract administration guide that addressed the issues identified by the audit team, and this was during the original audit. Um, the guide was published during the original audit, and the team's response indicated that they were not aware of the new guide. As part of the follow-up effort, we obtained a copy of the guide and reviewed it. Although the airport originally disagreed with recommendation 1.7, we found that the division has taken steps to implement this recommendation. Specifically, they've included a process to ensure agreements um, related to contract changes, including verbal agreements, um, are included in Unifier and that invoices are reviewed prior to making payments for changes. However, we did not do any additional audit work to verify or validate that these processes are operational. Um, we've reached the conclusion of our presentation of the Pena Boulevard Improvements Construction Contract follow-up audit. Uh, thank you for your time and we're happy to take any questions or comments from the airport or audit committee. Um, I have a question on the disagreed. It seems like you really did agree at the end of the day. What was the original disagreement that? I, I believe that it was a timing issue. The, um, the issue of tracking contingency was put into the system, but it was after this project was set up in the system. We weren't changed. So we were tracking contingency within the uh, accounting system that we use. Um, it just wasn't set up on this one. So our disagreement was we do have that process in place. It's not being used on, on the Pena uh, 1A project. Phase 2 is being used or not? Phase 2 hasn't started for construction yet, but um, or 1B, I guess, uh, but it will be used on that. Questions for the airport or the audit? 
Uh, no questions. We, we appreciate the work uh, and we look forward to uh, the continued partnership or oversight or whatever. <laughs> we like partnership. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, how is the Pena Boulevard? I know it's been in the paper and uh, I was wondering if you could give us a brief update on where things are. Uh, yes, um, you know, the, the, the background, uh, you probably know some of it. I mean, the airport was designed for 50 million annual passengers. We are retrofitting this airport to really accommodate 100 million annual passengers. And Pena Boulevard is a part of this. Uh, Pena Boulevard, of course, was never designed to, um, uh, to accommodate the volume that we have right now. We haven't even reached 100, 100 million. Uh, and so uh, we opted uh, for a study uh, to determine what transit or, or transportation demand management uh, functions that we could implement. Uh, I'm happy to report that uh, Dr. Cog uh, approved um, the uh, package of projects that included Pena Boulevard uh, last night. Uh, and uh, that uh, included some design, uh, uh, design work uh, and some environmental work. Uh, and so what we're saying is let's at least do a study uh, to determine what ideas we can generate for uh, relieving uh, the congestion on Pena. So that's kind of where we are right now. We'll see the results of, um, of that study uh, and we will uh, look to uh, do whatever we need to do. And that includes transit as well. Um, we have been partnering with RTD on uh, the EcoPass program. Uh, you may have read something uh, with that uh, with regard to the concessions. Um, but we need to do something about that roadway uh, as we uh, increase the volume of passengers uh, at uh, Denver International Airport. And some of the traffic really is not headed to Denver International Airport. They're headed to E-470. Is how do we, I mean? Do you develop a toll system or? Uh, well, uh, I'll ask Jim to comment uh, as well. We're we're not going to jump the gun on the study, um, but you're right. Uh, there is with the development. Uh, that has been going on over a number of years. Uh, there is a lot of non-airport traffic uh, and we have to account for that. We have a, a formula that says, um, you know, we can only uh, fund the, 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 the traffic that's going to the airport, the non-airport traffic. We, we can't fund the improvements uh, that's related to that. Um, but you're right, uh, this is a, a phenomenon. You know, we want development out there um, but the traffic that is not going to the airport is increasing over a, a, a period of years. And I don't know if, Jim, you want to add to that. Covered everything I was going to say. I think the, uh, the agreement with FAA, um, so we can, the airport itself can pay for 73% of the improvements, 27% through a traffic study that was done uh, several years ago shows that 27% of the traffic on Pena to the, the west of 470 um, is not, going to the airport or coming from the airport. So that's why that was very important with the Dr. Cog uh, grant uh, that went through last night to be able to fund that piece that the airport cannot fund because um, it has to come from other sources. But um, 
we will as we can as we finish up the mobility study this year that will really provide uh, both uh, transportation demand modeling uh, you know to look at what other you know what what we can do whether that you know to increase uh, rtd ridership maybe that's carpools van pools you know um, we're looking at um, additional bikeways that'll provide access to uh, the a-line uh, from from around uh, the neighborhoods around there so looking at kind of all um, all options i think that um, you know our preference you know phil and i both worked at rtd we both uh, believe in transit so having a, a much higher uh, share of people coming out on RTD would be great. Uh, we both would like that. Um, so that as we finish up this um, mobility study uh, at the end of the year, that'll really put the, kind of tell us where we, where we should be going. We still um, need to go through design and the NEPA process um, on this. So we'll have, you know, public hearings to, um, as part of that process to really get uh, public input um, and that'll take a couple years before we're able to move into any type of construction I um, I'd like I'd like to say that um, you know, I fully support the concept of trying to offload a lot of the uh, or some of the traffic to public transportation um, and the a-line despite you know some early issues I think functions well one problem that RTD that that is related to this um, is that, uh, and I speak because I have a number of um, flight attendant and pilot friends in the Park Hill area, and they would very much like to ride the train to avoid parking fees, but both the Colorado Boulevard station and the Central Park station, or parking for that, has recently, or in I guess a number of years now um, had significant problems with um, vandalism of cars a um, couple catalytic converters and just the handful of people that I know and other break-ins so unless RTD can solve the problem of safety you know they're going to continue to drive out to DIA because they they don't want to risk the loss of vehicle sure, sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> That was exactly the same comment that I was going to make. And uh, I can tell you, you know, personally, we try to take the A train. I will not park my car at Central Park. I just literally will not do it. Because when you look at the cost of a catalytic converter and the thefts, and I guess they're, um, you know, one of the basic problems around Denver has been you know, the question of law enforcement in general. And um, I, I flew out of Penny International the first day it was in business. And um, uh, took the bus and the train ever since. Never, ever worried about it in the last year and a half to two years. Nobody I know in their right mind does that. And the cost... <clears throat> of parking enforcement out there is just not that great. And I just think RTD is, um, you know, I know they, they control it, but that is a very big issue. I'm just, I, I can't overemphasize what Florine has just said. No, we, we, we don't disagree. Um, 
you know, I, I, I don't want to speak for RTD. I, I spoke for RTD a number of years when I was, <laughs> when I was the CEO there. But, uh, um, I, you know, we, we work with them very closely. Um, obviously, the A-line is very important to the airport uh, as well. Uh, and I do know that they are working with um, uh, their security folks and DPD, uh, the police department, uh, to try to put some, um, uh, you know, more, more security out there. But we'll pass that on. Uh, we work with them very, very closely. I know the CEO there very, uh, very well and have known her for 20 years. Uh, and so uh, we'll pass that on. I've got one other comment. Uh, taking the A-line anyway, um, I found that, you know, the, the guards on the train, uh, for one thing, after COVID, for some reason, I don't know what the problem is, but they, they don't check people's tickets anymore in terms of whether they paid or didn't pay, and supposedly it's because they have hardware problems. I don't know how much money is slipping out of revenues for RTD on that train because they, they can't really do anything about it. The Florine? last two times I've flown and taken the train just within the last six months, they have checked. Yes. I agree with you that- But do they right check against COVID their machine? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Oh, because they didn't even have machines. Yeah. They took those machines out, I'm sorry. I think they're back or something's yeah. back, yeah. Yeah, no, no, you know, I'll, I'll say, I mean, I ride it. I ride the train to the airport three or four days a week myself. Did you guys all ride the train coming here today? Uh, no, no, not, not, not today. Uh. I didn't ride it down here today. But, uh, but I ride it, and they do check. They do check. I've been on the train when, they, when they're there checking. There was a time when they didn't there. ride after yeah. COVID. And, and, and by the way, you know, they're free July and August, so they're not checking now. But uh, so don't get on today and. <laughs> let's go. Let's go take a ride. <laughs> Everywhere. It's free. Yeah. That's right. Oh. Um, I want to say thank you for your responsiveness to the audit report and uh, and for being the CEO of uh, RTD for a few minutes here. This <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> we look forward to continuing our relationship with you and the people at uh, the airport. So thank you very much. All right, we have our semi-annual audit analytics update. It's ongoing, it really is. Yeah. I specifically, um, I had my husband drive me up to the, to to the, the Colorado Boulevard station and drop off. That's right. We only lived a mile away. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's great. Yeah. I should have. Purple. <laughs> All right. Uh, Yes. Welcome to uh, our data analytics update. And Don, I don't know if you have any introductory remarks. <clears throat> I really don't, other than, you know, I think they're doing an awesome job. And I do want to thank the team for all the audit support that they've given 
just in the first six months of this year, and, and you'll hear a little bit about what that is and, and what they've done. So All right. I'll hand we'll it over to Chris. Turn it over to Chris. We have a whole new crew. <laughs> yep. So do you guys mind introducing <coughs> yourselves in terms of background? Because your predecessors really were extremely highly schooled and I'm sure you are too, but if you wouldn't <laughs> sure. mind doing that. Just definitely. Yeah, thanks. So my name is Chris Wilson. I'm the audit analytics manager. Um, I have a um, public administration degree from CU Denver where I focus mainly on statistics and data analysis as um, my elective coursework. Um, and I've, I joined the office as a auditor um, and eventually transitioned into to the analytics group. I'll pass it off to Daniel Summers who will introduce himself. Thanks. I'm Daniel. I uh, also have a master's in public administration. Chris and I went to school together. Um, my concentration is in local government and our project um, for our degree really focused on applied statistics for helping to understand how we could cluster streets to uh, understand ways to improve the safety of different mobility options. Um, and like Chris, I started as a regular auditor and moved into data analytics and it's been fantastic ever since. <laughs> Such a happy ending. Uh, my name is Heather Berger. I actually graduated um, with, from the same program that Chris and Daniel <laughs> just mentioned. So it's a very popular one for our office to cherry pick from. Um, and Sam Gallagher, if you remember him from the previous team, he was actually a professor of mine and that's how I learned of um, the opportunities in the auditor's office. Started as an intern and worked my way up to senior and then moved over to the data team just like Daniel and Chris also did, um, and have been there ever since. I also have recently earned my CFE, which is Certified Fraud Examiner Certification. Um, and I think that that about does it for me. I hope you aren't doing all that and then leaving us. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Good. No. <laughs> um, I'm Kaylee Smiley. I'm the audit analytics intern. I just earned my master's in statistics from CU Denver as well. And I'm currently an applied math PhD candidate there, and I focus in spatial data analysis. I think this team is equal to the previous team that you've seen in front of you, yep. if not even a little bit better. Yep, I agree. <laughs> I, I think they just have the unique yeah. skill set combination of auditor and data analyst, so it serves our purposes extremely well. Yeah, but I start worrying when people have hair. <laughs> <laughs> Men, that is. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I can shave. No, I think their audit background enables them to yeah. talk to the auditors and understand what the auditors need from the analytics. Yep. Definitely. Um, bef before we be begin, I also want to. Guys, I, I just, oh. you know. Yeah, certainly. Um, I also want to um, share our appreciation and, and uh, thanks to this graphic specialist, Jeff Newman, in our office, who prepared all the graphics you're gonna see in today's presentation. So the purpose of our semi-annual update is to discuss the results of our continuous monitoring efforts and risk assessment projects, as well as to provide updates on the work we've accomplished in the most re recent six month period. In this update, we focus on the work that took place from the first half of the year through June, 2023. So in today's presentation, we'll first summarize the updated results of our continuous audit and risk analytics. We'll then provide updates on two risk assessment projects. Next, we will discuss our data-related support we've provided to audit teams. 
And lastly, we'll highlight a few examples of how we've shared our, our experience in analytics with both the wider audit community and internally. <coughs> so as a reminder of what continuous auditing is, um, it, it's a technique that allows us to analyze potential risks by looking at large sets of both financial and process data throughout the year. We share our results internally to auditor's office leadership to help inform whether an area warrants further testing. So this slide summarizes the specific areas and number of records we looked at in our continuous monitoring work for the current update period. As you can see, most of our continuous monitoring involves data from the city's financial system of record workday. We have a web service connection that allows us to pull reports directly from the system that contain full populations of city transactions, such as those made using purchase cards and expense reports. We also monitor short-term license information in the city's permitting system, Acela. And we look at sales tax information in the city's tax system, Gentax. Due to the low risk in our scripts that cover Acela and Gentax, plus the other number of updates we wanted to highlight today, we will not provide details in these areas, but we did, however, provide these results and our takeaways to auditor's office leadership in our internal version of the presentation. In our last update, we implemented a new process to take a sample of flag transactions when we see a spike in the data. This has helped us learn whether the analytic flagged a true issue or a false positive. This term describes when analytic may flag a transaction based on its design, but there's not really an issue or problem in the data. We continue this approach for the current update period, and in a few areas, we provided an audit team with a sample of the flag transactions associated with their auditee. So now I'll actually pass it off to Daniel, who will discuss one of our newer continuous monitoring scripts. Thanks, Chris. Earlier this year, we provided audit support for the Citywide Information Technology Purchases Audit, the report for which was published this year in May. For this audit, we analyzed the population of all purchase card transactions made from January 13, 2021 through October 31, 2022. The January 13th start date aligns with the date when the city updated Executive Order Number 18, which formalized the role of technology services in reviewing and approving all technology purchases for the city. The update also expressly prohibits using purchase cards to buy technology. In this context, technology refers to hardware such as laptops and tablets, as well as, soft, as, well as software applications. When technology is purchased outside the standard procurement method, the city's technology services department cannot ensure the asset aligns with the city's current infrastructure. Most notably, that the asset is able to protect private or sensitive information that is used in the regular course of business. We developed five risk flags to help identify potential technology purchases. We developed multiple flags because there's not a single way to identify every technology purchase due to the inconsistent ways that technology purchases are entered into Workday. Therefore, we wanted to develop several indicators of risk and use a combination of those indicators to better isolate true issues in the data. Our flags look for purchases that may be technology related using five characteristics. Risky words that may appear in the memo, risky words that may appear in the vendor description, risky merchant category codes, risky purchase spend categories, and purchases attributed to the city's technology ledger account. We analyzed purchase card transactions that occurred between January 13, 2021 and October 31, 2022, 
and found about 28,000 transactions that tripped at least one risk flag. We then assessed how well each flag identified true technology purchases using a regression analysis, which allows us to measure the relationship between a set of inputs on a single output. We used the results of the regression to assign weights to each flag based on how well, we, um, how well they identified true issues in the data. Next, we used these weights to assign a risk score on a scale of zero to one. The higher the score, the more likely the transaction is a technology purchase. We assign the score to all flag transactions. Of the approximately 28,000 transactions that tripped at least one flag, 2,417 scored 0.5 or more, while the rest scored lower than 0.5. From the group of about 2,400 transactions that scored 0.5 or more, we selected a random sample of 130 transactions to test. We calculated the statistical sample using a precision range of 10% and a confidence level of 90%. That means we're 90% sure that our sample's results will be within 10% of what we would find if we looked at all 2,400 transactions. We refer to the group of transactions with a score of 0.5 or above as high-risk transactions. From this sample, the audit team found 120 violated the city's executive order number 18. This allowed us to learn about the error rate within the group of high-risk transactions. Based on what the audit team found, we expect that between 87 and 96% of the 2,400 transactions likely violated the executive order, or between about 2,100 and 2,300 transactions. The results of this work are described in more detail in the report our office published in May of this year. The audit team found that, that city agencies bypass necessary approval for technology purchases when they use purchase cards and expense reimbursements. Technology services agreed to both audit recommendations in this area and set the implementation dates for December 31st of this year. For this update period, we implemented a continuous script to continue monitoring the risk of city employees using purchase cards to buy technology. While the city still has time to implement the recommendations, we thought it would be helpful to start tracking high-risk transactions now to learn if the city's actions help curb the number of high-risk transactions in subsequent update periods. For this update, we looked for new high-risk transactions made between November 1st, 2022 and June 30th of this year. This time frame continues where the full audit analysis left off. For this new time frame, we used the same method for identifying high-risk transactions described in the audit report published earlier this year in May. This plot shows the combined results of the high-risk transactions we identified through our audit support, as well as the new high-risk purchases we identified as of June 30th of this year. The results are displayed as the count and spending amounts of high-risk purchase card transactions in possible violation of executive order number 18. As a reminder, we define high-risk purchases as those that had a risk score of 0.5 or more, which is based on the number of risk flags each transaction triggered. One example of a high-risk purchase we saw in the citywide IT audit was the purchase of a cloud-based data storage service like Dropbox. This purchase is high-risk for a few reasons. First, the service may be simply incompatible with the city's network and systems. Second, without proper vetting and review, the service might open the city to security vulnerabilities as well as data protection and privacy concerns. 
And third, even if there's no other issues, purchasing single licenses risks overspending by missing out on bulk discount pricing advantages. In the plot, we see a maximum total of 190 purchases in December of 2021, which were associated with a maximum amount of about $66,000. Beginning in May 2022, we start to see the count of high-risk purchase card transactions remain relatively stable through the end of our current testing period. We will continue to monitor this trend, which will help us know if the city's actions to address our audit recommendations are indeed reducing the number of high-risk transactions. Any questions on this analysis before we continue? Yeah. Yeah, um, just out of curiosity, um, as, as you're doing the follow-up, uh, is anybody from the auditor's office sitting down with technology services? Because the most alarming things that you were bringing up and it's been brought up before is it's not just the money, it's, it's the real, it's the risk to the systems. Um, I'm just kind of curious whether you guys are meeting with them uh, on an ongoing basis a little bit or not. I'm Maybe not these guys, but anybody. No, yeah. But, yeah. I, I was just going to say our team is not, but um, as part of the follow-up process, the, I, the information technology audit team will be meeting with them during the follow-up process. Um, so that will hopefully shed some light on whether they implemented the recommendations one and if they took the actual corrective action needed to address the risks identified in the original audit. Don, do you have? Yeah, yeah, and, and we did work really closely with technology services for the actual audit. And, and, you know, they share the same concerns that you do with regard to it's not just about the money, it's about the vulnerabilities. No, no, I mean, I, yeah. I felt that yeah. they did. And that's why I'm asking... Are we waiting too long? You know, are, are you? But the isn't the question really, uh, is anybody else aware or acting on it? Because technology, if I understand the situation, technology services doesn't have control over key card purchases or expense reimbursements from the, right. all the, right. the rest of the city. Right. So the question is really, is the, you know, are the EDs aware or are the, is the mayor, you know, office aware so, I mean they're the ones that have to take action and and oh sorry I was just gonna say and that is some of the recommendations um, that the initial audit made is about making sure oh. that there's education and yeah. procedure updates problems audit looked at them and said yeah like there was hundred and twenty transactions then what happens? Do, going back to Flo's question, are the different departments notified and said, hey, you guys did this and this and this and you shouldn't have? I don't know who to ask that question to, so. <laughs> well, I think once we do our audit follow-up and see how they've implemented the recommendations, okay. I think then we'll have a better idea of how they are gonna but I'm just look to monitor or solve. Um, I don't know that we'll go back and look at all of the, <clears throat> excuse me, 120 of the transactions again but I, we're gonna go back and look at what the recommendation asked them to do to mitigate those okay. and to further monitor and, and find those. So I think once we do the follow-up, we'll know more about what their plans are to continue to look at that and monitor it. But I know it's what something you're that's on their was, radar. What yeah. you're asking is whether I, uh, IT has been made aware of the 120. 
Or and, not even uh, IT, but whatever department is causing yeah. these problems. Because I'm just I'm saying, sure they haven't. If I were the ED, I would sure like to know that somebody within my realm is yeah. And, and some of the departments throughout the audit were questioned about, well, why did you purchase this? So, okay. it so was brought to their attention. it was brought to their attention through the testing phase. Okay. Yeah. But that data, not this right. data. Right. So then the audit comes out. So then we'll see really how they're monitoring and, and what their plans are to do to continue to talk with those agencies. And Plus you have a change in administration, which makes it even, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it just yeah. truly yeah. makes it much more difficult for you to communicate with people who are focused on whether or not they're going to keep their job. And no, no, it's a practical yeah. matter. It's just not so easy. Plus the benefit of the analytic to continue as well. So we can kind of monitor that and see, you know, where are the trends taking us and what more, what action should we still continue to take? All right, let's continue. All right, I'll pass it off to Kaylee to talk about our purchase card analyses. Thanks, Daniel. Um, for this analysis, we used a composite model that incorporates the results of three individual risk flags. The first flag is transactions from pass-through vendors, which disguise the identity of the individual receiving the money, such as Amazon, PayPal, or Venmo. The second flag is even dollar transactions, which are transactions with a dollar amount evenly divisible by $100. The last flag is potential split transactions, which are groups of transactions with the same cardholder, agency, merchant, and date, where their combined total amount exceeds the city's single transaction limit of $2,000. Our composite model identifies purchase card transactions that trigger at least two of the three mentioned risk flags. Applying our model to all purchase card transactions from January 2018 to June 2023 showed that 1,309 of the roughly 378,000 transactions triggered at least two flags, which is only 0.35% of all transactions. Here we show the results of our purchase card composite model broken down by month. This graph shows the number of transactions that were flagged at least twice and their associated dollar amounts. The trends during the last six months mostly align with past trends. However, we do see decreases in the peak number of transactions and the peak dollar amounts. During the time frame included in the graph, the largest number of transactions with two or more flags was 38 in May of 2019. In comparison, during the last six months, the peak was 26 transactions in March. We've also seen a gradual decrease in the number of transactions after March of this year, with a low of eight in June. Keeping in mind that we analyzed over 378,000 purchase card transactions, these monthly numbers are very low. Additionally, in July of 2019, the peak dollar amount was roughly $35,000, and since then, the peaks have remained around $25,000. It is worth mentioning that when we tested for potential split transactions and passed through vendor transactions, we provided the flagged items associated with city council spending to the city council operations audit team to review during the planning phase of their audit. This helped inform the scope of their audit and they will report on any issues they identified at committee on December 21st. I will now cover the results of our travel card spending analysis. Our analytic categorizes each travel card transaction as low, medium, or high risk based on the merchant category code. 
The risk associated with each merchant category code has been determined using the fiscal accountability rules for travel cards with the goal of labeling transactions that don't appear to be travel related as medium or high risk. We identified a total of 865 high risk transactions, 129 medium risk transactions, and roughly 40,000 low risk transactions. This means that 98% of our travel card transactions are categorized as low risk. Additionally, the number of transactions categorized as medium or high risk has decreased in the last six months when compared to prior periods, which we will see on the next slide. This graph shows the number of travel card purchases and their associated dollar amounts grouped by month and risk level. We chose to group medium and high risk transactions together in this graphic since they make up such a small percentage of travel card transactions. Specifically, the monthly count of high or medium high or medium risk transactions has not <coughs> exceeded 48 in the past four and a half years, which is very low when we consider that we analyzed over 40,000 travel card transactions. As the graphic shows in the first six months of 2023, the trends within the group of low risk transactions align with the trends from before the pandemic in 2019. We can also see that during the last six months, the number of high and medium risk transactions and their total dollar amounts have stayed consistently lower than their levels in 2019. For example, in the first half of 2023, the largest dollar amount associated with high and medium risk purchases is roughly $9,600 in May, which is significantly less than the maximum of almost $34,000 in April of 2019. It is worth mentioning that in our previous update, we looked at a sample of the high-risk transactions and found no issues based on the supporting documentation provided in Workday. Each sampled item was tied to a travel purchase. Therefore, we don't recommend any action based on the results of this analytic, but we'll continue to monitor it in our next update. And now I'll pass it to Chris to talk about expense reports. The city uses expense reports to reimburse employees when they make business-related purchases using their own money. We again use a composite model here to monitor three risk indicators. The top spender indicator tracks the employees who receive the largest cumulative amount of money from the city through reimbursements. Benford's law al allows us to look at the first digit in a group of these transactions to see if their distribution aligns with what is expected and flag transactions that don't follow the distribution assumed by Bensford's law. So for instance, the law states that in a naturally occurring set of numbers, the first digit in the number is one in about 30% of the group of numbers. And lastly, the even dollar risk indicator flags transactions with a total amount that is evenly divisible by $10. In this update period, we analyze all 56,355 expense report line items from January 2018 through June 2023. This slide shows a Venn diagram that summarizes the number of transactions that triggered each risk flag. As you can see, the top, risk, the top spender risk is the largest group containing about 36,000 line items. When the circles overlap, that means the transaction triggered more than one risk flag. For example, there are only 448 line items that triggered all three risk flags in our entire testing period. We also analyzed the most recent six months of records to look for any changes compared to the last time we analyzed these risks. In the last six months, 
we found the number of line items that triggered at least two risk flags decreased from 611 to 499. Additionally, there were only 19 line items that tripped all three risk flags, which is lower than all previous update periods. Due to the decreases in the count of line items associated with these risk flags, we do not recommend any actions be taken, but again, we'll continue to monitor the trends in our next update. And similar to the high-risk purchase card transactions Kaylee talked about, we also provided the team that's currently auditing City Council operations the flag transactions tied to City Council spending. Now we'll shift gears to talk about our updates related to city's, the city's purchase orders. A purchase order is a documented authorization for the city to acquire goods or services from a vendor or supplier. We apply risk analytics in four areas. Specifically, we look at duplicate transactions, unauthorized purchases, even dollar purchases, and shipping addresses. In this update period, we created a new analytic in the area of shipping addresses to flag purchase orders with addresses that match city employee addresses. I'll first discuss our analysis of duplicate transactions. Duplicate transactions refer to any pair of transactions with identical payment amounts and similar supp supplier names. We perform continuous auditing to identify duplicate transactions present between purchase order and purchase card data and purchase card and travel card data. For this update period, we adjusted the analysis to use a more efficient fuzzy logic algorithm that provides a similarity score between two sets of data. Fuzzy logic is an algorithm that allows us to find similar information in two different sets of data. It provides a score between zero or one, or between zero and 100%, based on how similar the sets of inputs are. A similarity score is then assigned to each row of data based on the percentage of characters they have in common. In our context, we use it to compare vendor fields and amount fields between purchase card and purchase order data and between travel card and purchase card data. Given that the same vendor name could be recorded with two different spellings between these two data sets, fuzzy logic allows us to find potential matches by identifying how many characters each data set has in common with each other. A 100% match means every character matches perfectly between the two data sets. So in the first half of 2023, the number of potential duplicate transactions has decreased for purchase cards and travel cards, but has slightly increased compared to prior periods for purchase card and purchase orders. The decrease for purchase card and travel cards continues the trend that we began to see during our last update with sets of potential duplicates decreasing compared to the prior periods. We looked at all 12 purchase card transactions that had exact matches with purchase orders in the last six months. We looked these up in Workday to learn whether these were actual duplicate transactions or potentially false positives. Of the 12 exact matches, there were six purchase card transactions that appeared to be tied to an invoice on the purchase order. This, is not, this does not necessarily mean that there are duplicate payments, but rather it, it appears that they are instances where the employee used a purchase car, card to pay for the invoice item. We will continue to monitor this 
area in case the count of exact matches increases again next period. We also analyze unauthorized purchases. Unauthorized purchases are purchase orders that violate the city's procurement process. We categorize them in three groups, after the fact violations, fiscal rule violations, and code violations. After the fact violations are orders submitted after receiving materials or services. Fiscal rule violations are orders not completed for totals under $10,000. And code violations are orders not completed for totals over $10,000. Of the 71,000 purchase orders in the data, we found just under 1,500, or 2%, were flagged with at least one violation. In response to discussions we had with you all during our previous update in February, and using some new information we learned from the purchasing department, we adjusted our approach slightly to move beyond these general numbers and learn more about the violations themselves. We sampled each category individually to check for attached and signed justification forms. Unauthorized purchases should not occur, but the purchasing department understands there are circumstances in which they might. So for that reason, they developed a process that includes attaching signed justification forms with each unauthorized purchase. Justification forms explain the circumstance, how it occurred, and how it might uh, be avoided in the future. We found that for every fiscal rule violation and every code violation, there was an attached justification form. However, four code violation forms lacked the required signatures. And we found that in eight of the after-fact violations that we sampled, they lacked either a form or the required signature. Because this was not a full audit, it is possible we are overlooking nuances to the policy that could impact these results. We did, however, verify that for each unauthorized purchase that appeared incomplete, there was an attached documentation, uh, there was some attached documentation that verified the purchase as a city-related expense. This is a look at how all three types of violations measure up based on the number of occurrences. Overall, looking at the trend line over the last two years, we see fiscal rule violations are increasing the most, on average by 10 a year, and code violations are increasing by about one a year. The only downward trend we see is in after-the-fact violations, which are decreasing on average by about one a year. When we look specifically at the most recent six months and compare it to the previous six months, we found that in all three, category, all three categories have increased slightly. Again, in response to discussions we had during our last update, we added dollar amount to our analytic for these unauthorized purchase types, which we'll look at individually in the next few slides. Unlike on the previous slide, this slide includes count and dollar amount associated with each type of unauthorized purchase. This view makes it a little easier to see the slight increase of after-the-fact violations compared to the previous six months that I mentioned. However, occurrences have remained low with a count of eight or lower since the beginning of 2019. Dollar amount has also remained relatively low in the same time period apart from February of this year. <laughs> <laughs> There's a large spike of over half a million dollars that far surpasses any monthly total we've seen in the last four years. 
Based on documentation and workday, we found that the total amount belongs to just one purchase. The airport field maintenance team ordered de-icing fluid to support operations on the airfield, which resulted in an after-the-fact violation because the order was attempted on a previous purchase order that had already been utilized for the same product and closed once it hit the amount limit. Going into winter 2023, there was a higher need and an increased cost for de-icing fluid, and the original purchase order was not written to include that anticipated need. So why didn't they create a new purchase order? They did, but it, it was an unauthorized, so. But after they bought it, they created a purchase correct. order. So, so why couldn't they do it before? Well, they could have, and they should have, okay. and if they did, it wouldn't have been an after the fact unauthorized Probably purchase. because they forgot and said, oh my, we need it now. Well, I th they were, <laughs> yes. I mean, there are some cases like that where it happened, it needs to happen quicker um, than the, the process, process allows. Process purchase order, yeah. Um, but yes, in this case, it seemed like they thought there was enough on the previous purchase order to cover the, the new request, um, but because there was more order than usual and the cost was higher, um, they just weren't prepared. Ran out, yeah. Just out of curiosity, I mean, it was a very cold winter, and so it's easy to understand how that can happen. But when they did this, um, was the price higher uh, than what the previous purchase order allowed? Or in other words, I'm trying to figure out what the exposure was as a practical matter. <clears throat> it seemed like with this new purchase, the one that occurred in February, the, pr the cost of de-icing fluid was higher than what was um, what we saw at the end of 2022. Um, does that answer your question? Partially. Okay, and then- A lot higher? No, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's like, you understand? In other words, what was the real exposure here? If if you can, if if you can answer that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we have those details. We were mainly focused on: is there at least a justification form for? Oh no, I understand. I'm, I'm just trying to understand. Definitely, what and you found or didn't. Yeah, that's all. So we don't have the details, but we could look that up and and get back to you all. Um, definitely. Well, you don't have to get back to us. Okay. Get back to the auditors. We're going to look at this. Yeah, we do want the plans to be de-iced. We know that. Yeah. <laughs> Paperwork is important, but more important is de-icing the plane. But poor planning could have created, or lack of planning might have created. Well, except I, I can tell you, Florine, <clears throat> last winter was really oh, no, was. cold relative to what we had, had before, and you can just, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's okay. like whatever. Continue. In addition to the number of fiscal rule violations increasing, we found that the associated dollar amount also continues to increase, reaching its height at about $80,000 in the first half of this year. This is the third largest monthly total we've seen in our time frame. Looking into it further, we found the spike is, again, related to a single purchase covering the cost of updating surveillance system software. And finally, looking closer at code violations, 
we see the slight increase in occurrences. And similar to after the fact violations, the monthly totals have remained low with a, low, with a count of eight or lower since the beginning of 2019. The associated dollar amount, however, so far in 2023 has increased more than usual, not including the spike in 2021. Just as before, we considered this an outlier and reviewed it closer in workday. Similarly, the increase in January of this year is related to a single purchase order covering the cost of oil and gas purchased by the airport. What's the difference between a fiscal rule violation and a code violation? The dollar amount spent. So code violation. Got it. Under 10,000 versus over 10,000. Exactly. Yep. Um, we also analyzed the shipping addresses included in our purchase order data. The analytic we created compares shipping addresses to city facilities. This allows us to separate the data into two distinct populations, verified and unverified. Verified locations are shipping addresses that match city facilities and unverified locations do not. The shipping addresses that do not match verified city facilities are the addresses that comprise the risk population, which is about 20% of addresses across 1% of all purchase orders. Overall, we found fewer addresses and dollars spent uh, than what we saw in the previous six months. The number of purchase orders has remained the same. Just as we did in our last update, we used a geocoding tool to find the latitude and longitude of each address to display as a map of Denver. The blue dots represent the verified locations and the red dots represent the unverified locations. Each dot represents only one location, but in most cases, it represents multiple purchase orders. And again, the red dots make up only 1% of all purchase orders since January 2019. We took a sample of all purchase orders that correspond to a red dot and found the majority were, in fact, city facilities and the others were addresses for suppliers. With each iteration of this analytic, we continue to update our city facilities list to enhance the efficiency of the analytic and decrease false positives. We added a new analytic that, uses, uh, that also uses shipping addresses found in purchase order data the analytic matches shipping addresses to employee addresses. Just like with duplicate transactions that Chris described, we designed the analytic using fuzzy logic and assigned a similarity score. This allowed, allowed us to see easily which addresses matched exactly and which were very close. Finding close matches helps reduce limitations that typos and formatting errors can pose when analyzing data. This was a particular concern in this case because employees self-report their addresses in Workday. Of all purchase orders, uh, 2000, I'm sorry, 2000, 296 had addresses that matched 90% or more characters in an employee address. We reviewed each of them and found 54 were unique addresses. Of these, 49 were city facilities, four were supplier addresses, and one was a project location. None matched an employee and an employee residence. So, so far this year in this area of an analysis, my goodness, appears to be low risk, but we will continue to include it as one of our continuous analytics that we report on every six months. Are there any questions about shipping addresses or unauthorized purchases before we move on? Okay. 
All right, this next set of slides provides an overview of our recently completed analysis looking at the Denver Employees Retirement Plan and introduces another analysis we're planning to complete this year looking at the city's contractors. Our objective for the Denver Employees Retirement Plan project was to determine if employee contributions, employer contributions, and benefit payouts are accurate and determine whether procedures are compliant with applicable policies. We began this project at the direction of the executive team. Upon completion of the project, we communicated the results of our analysis through an internal memo. And earlier this month, we also presented our results to management at the Denver Employees Retirement Plan. For this project, we develop analytics to test risks related to contributions from employees and the city into the pension, benefit payments to retirees, and contribution refund payments made to employees who separate before vesting. We also reviewed the list of benefit eligible earnings to identify types of earnings that may not be specifically related to the services provided by the employee to the city. Between the results of our analytics and our follow-up work to review samples of flagged transactions, we found low risk related to the management of the city's retirement benefits. However, in our analysis of the benefit eligible earnings for 2022, we found the city includes earnings such as relocation premiums and recruitment bonuses as benefit eligible, which means both the city and the employee pay contributions on those incentive payments. We are expanding this analysis to perform a more comprehensive review of benefit eligible earnings and to quantify their impact on the city and employees. Our testing period for this project spanned January 2018 through December of 2022. Within this period, we analyzed 1.2 million payroll records, more than 600,000 retirement payments, and over 3,000 refund payments. Our first area of analysis looked at the contributions made by employees and the city into the pension each month or each pay period. For this area, we analyzed the risk of ineligible employees making contributions and the risk of inaccurate contribution amounts. We developed several analytics to test these risks and provide a few examples of those analytics on the slide. For instance, we evaluated the eligibility of employees making contributions based on their employment type, their job description, and their hours worked. We also recalculated every employee and city contribution and compared our recalculated amount to the reported total. Our next area of analysis deals with the risk of ineligible individuals receiving retirement payments and testing the accuracy of those payments. An example of an analytic in this area was testing whether we could trace all retirees who received a retirement payment to the city's human resources records. Another analytic we developed to test a risk related to retirement payments was a trend analysis of the count of retirees by age group who receive retirement payments. We borrowed this idea from Clifton Larson Allen's presentation on benefit plan analytics. The figure on this slide shows the count of retirees for several selected age groups who received retirement payments during our testing period covering 2018 through 2022. We expect to see the counts of each group to stay the same or decrease over time in natural end of life or mortality trends. For example, let's look at the light blue line in the middle. 
This line represents the count of individuals who were 90 years old in 2018. As we see, there are 38 individuals who are 90 years old in 2018. In 2019, this group decreases to a total of 35 individuals, then decreases again to 28 individuals in 2020. Based on our results, this trend exhibits low risk in this area as the counts of each age group decrease over time as expected. The next area of our analysis tested the risk of ineligible employees receiving a refund and inaccurate refund payment amounts. An example of our analytics in this area was to compare the list of people who received a refund with the city's termination report. Any questions on our analysis of the city's pension before we continue? Daniel, I thought the one thing that uh, came out of this is that there's not a clear definition of salary. And exactly. Well, as long as the contribution of the employee and the employer is greater than or equal to what would be required by the actuaries, there's no unfunded liability being created. Um, but there still should be a proper definition of salaries that would be retirement exactly. uh, eligible. And <clears throat> wouldn't that also go to what the benefit would be ultimately if that factors into the person's highest years? Yeah, but as long so as they're be, paying the actuarially determined contribution, they're going to get, it could be a higher amount. Yeah, yeah. I, but, I'm, but I guess what I'm getting to is their benefit would be, could be un, inaccurately higher later on, yeah. yeah. Um, so turning to um, our next topic, another project we plan to complete by the end of this year is an analysis of city contractors. For this, we will use information from the city's contract system of record called Jagger. This project includes analyzing contracts to provide descriptive information, including the number of contractors, type of contractor, and count of unique contractors. We'll provide more information on the results of this analysis at our next update. Um, and then I'll pass it off to Chris if there's no other questions. All right. This next set of slides summarizes the audit assistance we have provided to audit teams in the last six months. Similar to our last update period, we have spent the majority of our time working on data-related components of audits. This slide shows the list of completed and in-progress audits we have helped with within the last six months. Our support can be categorized into three areas, data analysis, sampling, and technical support, such as drafting the methodology language for the audit reports. In total, we've provided support to nine audits in the first six months of this year. Further, our work has helped support findings in all four of the audits listed on this slide that have been completed and published so far this year. I'll hi highlight a few examples of our audit support in the next few slides. The Homeless Encampments Audit was published in April 2023. We provided support to the audit team by developing and executing their sampling methodology to test invoices related to city spending. We also developed several maps for the team 
highlighting the locations of encampments visited by different city agencies. This slide shows a screenshot of the interactive visualization we made for the office's webpage. It compiles all the maps we made for the team into a single map. Specifically, it shows all encampment locations visited by various city agencies from January 2022 through June of 2022. Users can navigate the map with their mouse and zoom in and out of the map to isolate certain encampment locations. If you hover over an encampment location, you can view the distance between each encampment and the city's main property storage facility, and you can see the number of times an agency visited that location. We also provided data analysis and sampling support to the College Affordability Fund Program, which was published in July of this year. The audit team received a set of 14 spreadsheets that contained all 7,814 reimbursement requests for their audit scope. Given that the information was fragmented, we cleaned the data and merged all 14 spreadsheets together, which allowed us to perform analytics on the entire data set. We tested whether each reimbursement request held the required information and whether that information complied with the eligibility requirements set by city ordinance. As the audit report highlights, we found issues related to both data reliability and eligibility. And we are currently working on several data analyses to support the residential permitting audit. The audit is focused on residential permit reviews, and our analysis is covering around 500,000 tasks related to those reviews, which are tied to about 19,000 unique permits. Our analysis focuses on three main areas, which include how long it takes the residential review team to complete the reviews, including whether the review was completed on time or not, the employee workload distribution, and lastly, data reliability. For the area of data reliability, we are reviewing the data for potential duplicate tasks and whether the auditee's internal tracking relies on any fields that have missing or incomplete information. Now this slide shows the trainings we held for audit staff in the last six months, as well as the conference Daniel and I presented at in May of this year. The far right column shows the number of continuing professional education hours that were associated with each training and presentation. We provided so far trainings on attribute development and sampling, as well as how to use a program called Arbutus for data analysis. In addition, we have made major updates to our internal Microsoft Excel trainings based on feedback from our internal training survey. We divided up what was a previous single training into two separate trainings. The first training we gave this year focused on data cleaning in the context of audit work. This next slide provides an overview of our work in the last six months. As you can see, we provided support for nine audits ran 27 scripts looking at a roughly 18 million total records, offered four internal trainings, and presented at one conference. And this last slide highlights our next steps for, th for the next six months. So as you can see, we plan to complete our descriptive analysis of city contracts and our analysis of benefit eligible earnings. In addition, we will complete our audit support work for the residential permitting and city self-insured health plan audits. And lastly, 
we will be providing our second internal training using Microsoft Excel, which will focus on the techniques and tools that audit teams can use to conduct their test work. This concludes our presentation. It's been a busy six months. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Oh, yeah. It's been productive, though, so it's yeah, been nice. I agree. Excellent work. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions for Chris and the team? No? I'd just like to say, as, as I think I say every six months, it's fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating. And, and, and I applaud you all. Thank you. We appreciate yeah. it. Important. Right. Right. It makes me feel old because it's <laughs> a, such a su it's such a far cry from how you know we did random sampling <clears throat> 30 years ago. <laughs> Judgmental sampling. Yeah, that was fun yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, All right. We'll, <laughs> we'll have uh, Jack and Flo give a presentation on judgment. <laughs> judgmental sampling. <laughs> Closing your eyes. And <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> under general business, our next meeting is September 21st. It will be in room 391, not in the Par Widener room, and we'll underscore that as we communicate with you. Um, the mayor is going through the budgets of all the city departments and agencies, and they use this room, so we want to have a budget. So. Yes, it's important. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else to come before the committee? If not, we're adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>